Our scripture today is John 3, 16. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you will. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Where Jesus says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege of studying it together. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you hear people discussing God and sharing their thoughts about God, the images of God, it's interesting to hear the way different people see this God that we sing about, this God that that we join together to worship, this God that we read about in the scripture. Sometimes I even wonder, are, are we talking about the same God when we hear the conversations? Some seem to have this image of this angry God, this God who is so frustrated with the world, this God who is, is so ready just to, to wring out his wrath on this world. Others seem to, to have this image of God sitting on the throne, anxiously awaiting for someone to come before him so he can go, you are good, welcome, you are bad, to the side. You are good, welcome, you are good, welcome, you, very bad, special place for you. It's interesting as we hear the, the concept, and in today's world, with so much anger in our world today, with the political animosity that we have all around us today. It's interesting when you hear people pull out scripture or, or invoke the name of God, it's amazing. No matter which side they're speaking from, it's just amazing to hear how we can grab a little verse or grab a little point from the scripture and this is what God would want. And I wonder, how many of us ever take the time to read the whole book to see who this God really is? This God who so loves the world. I mean, when I, I read the scripture, I sense this God who is desiring an intimate relationship with us as people. I mean, read the book of Genesis, for example. I love the creation stories where God creates by simply saying, let there be. Day one, let there be. Day two, let there be. And, and throughout, God creates. Let there be the sun. Let there be the moon. Let there be the stars. Let there be the earth. Let there be land. Let there be water. And, and throughout all the days, God creates until he gets to us. And God didn't say, and let there be human beings. And there we appear. But when God got to us, after saying, let there be and naming everything else into creation by simply saying the word, the scripture says, God formed us. God shaped us with his hands. I love that. We're handmade. That makes us special. God shaped us with his hands and 
And then one of the most intimate pictures I think we see in the scripture is where God then leans over the Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for, that we use for Adam, but it's the Hebrew word for human being. And so God leans over the Adam, Adam, the human being, and, and he breathes the breath of life into him. Intimacy. This closeness that God has with us, his people. And we see God continues, continues to work in our lives, continues to, to hand make us today. We just celebrated a few moments ago in the earlier service a baptism where I was able to take a child in my arms and, and celebrate God's grace. And the scriptures tell us in Psalm 139 that it is God who knits us together in our mother's womb. God intimately involved, intimately involved in our lives. But does that mean that no matter what, everything is fine and there's, there's never any consequences or anything like that? Well, no, I mean, just continue reading Genesis. You, you don't have to go far. You, you only get to chapter 3 before you see that we mess up. God creates, it's good, and, and the human beings are living there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and, and God is fellowshipping with them on a regular basis, walking through the garden with them. But then the serpent comes along and tempts them into disobeying God, and, and they do, and immediately they realize this breach has occurred, and they immediately realize their nakedness, and they're ashamed, and when God comes walking through the garden, they hide. One of the sure signs to know if you've messed up is, do you hide from God? And they're hiding. And God asks, where are you? And finally they say, we're over here. Well, why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Well, who told you you're naked? And, and, and then God realizes they, they sinned against me. They disobeyed. And, and so God removed them from the garden. But did God abandon them? Never. Consequences? Yes. Abandonment? No. For God didn't say, you've messed up. You're out of my life. I have nothing to do with you. Be gone. But rather, when God removes them from the garden, the scripture says that it was God himself who knit them close. God himself. Consequences, yes. Abandonment, never. Why? For God so loved the world. He so loved them. You might remember the Exodus event when we looked last week as we share, shared the first Sunday of Advent with hope. And we re remembered how the children of Israel found themselves in slavery and captivity in Egypt and how God sent Moses to deliver them. You might remember the story as they're, they're leaving Egypt and, and, and they're heading away. God finally, after years in the wilderness, gets them to the edge of the promised land and God says to them, now you have been delivered. And I'm about to lead you into this land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's a land with olives and pomegranates. It's a land that is so blessed. You will have everything that you need. Now, when you build your fine houses and when your crops have multiplied and your cattle have multiplied and, and everything's going well, do not forget me. Don't forget me. Do not become complacent in the land that I'm about to give to you. But remember me, or otherwise, you will not live here long. You will be removed. 
And so they enter into the promised land, but it doesn't take long. Pretty soon they're beginning to worship the gods that the other peoples had worshipped. And, and pretty soon they're, they're no longer carrying out the various rituals and the worship experiences and the celebrations that God had commanded. And pretty soon the covenant is very broken and the Babylonians then come in and, and conquer Israel and destroy the temple in Jerusalem and, and take Judah and Israel into captivity and scatter them throughout the land, moving their, their strongest, best people throughout the region to break their hearts and to break their spirits. And they are lost. They're lost. But did God give up? Consequences, yes. Abandonment, never. Why? Because... God so loved them. And God had sent prophet after prophet to say to them, you need to remember. Remember what God said. Remember what God told us. Remember how God said if we forget, we need to turn back. We need to be more loyal to God. We need to listen to the word of God. And the people didn't. That One of those prophets was, was Jeremiah. Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah 31, God gives him a new message. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. God says to the people who are now in exile, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Consequences, yes, but abandonment never because God so loves. And, and so God shared with them, I, I'm going to bring you back into this holy land, back into this promised land. Why? Because it's a covenant. As I share with Abraham and I've shared with all those before you, I will be your God. You will be my people. You belong to me. Timothy Jones tells the story about how his family decided that they wanted to adopt another child. And so they found this beautiful little girl. She was about eight years of age. They were going to adopt her, bring her into their family. But it turned out to be much more difficult than they ever imagined. Because this little girl at eight years of age was a handful. Now, last night, Nancy and I had the privilege of going to Raleigh. And, and we were, I did a wedding last night for one of the families in our church. And and, and so I'd asked the bride and the groom, I said, now, you, you can write something up and send it to me about the other one, and I'll weave those into my, you know, the remarks that I share in part of the ceremony. They didn't know what each other had written. They sent it to me, and, and so we get to that part in the ceremony, and the bride looked at the groom and basically said, I thank you for loving me because I know I am a handful. This little girl was a handful. She was a little pistol. I mean, she was something else. But by this time in her life, she had experienced a lot of things and had kind of learned how to deal with the world. As a matter of fact, another family had thought about adopting her, brought her into their home, and, and after a while, they just realized she's too much for us, and, and so they dissolved the process. So once again, she had felt that sense of abandonment, that sense of hurt, that you're kind of on your own. There's nobody else looking out for you. You're kind of on your own. And so when they brought her into their family, this little girl, she would, instead of asking for something, which they would gladly have given to her, she would take it, including snacks, a snack. Instead of just being able to go, can I have that, knowing that they would gladly give it to her, she would wait until nobody was looking and then she would just take it. 
And she could lie better than anybody. I mean, the little girl had learned how to lie, and, and then she was very insulting to the other kids. And, and so it was quite a challenge for them. But they learned from this little girl over some time that one of her dreams was to go to Disney World. Oh, she wanted to go to Disney World more than anything. What they also learned was the previous family that had planned to adopt her, the previous family that had brought her into their home, well, they had planned a trip to Disney World, but when this little girl kept misbehaving and doing wrong, they decided, you don't deserve to go, so they left her with someone else while the rest of the family went to Disney. And so she, she'd experienced that kind of pain, and, and so when, when they heard this story, they thought, we're, we're taking this child to Disney. As a family, we're going to go to Disney. But this little girl was a handful, and she continued to get into trouble, and a couple weeks before they were to leave to go to Disney, she had done something else that was wrong, and so the father called her over, and, and he set her up on his lap and wanted to talk to her. And before he could say anything, she said, I know what you're going to do. And he said, what? And she said, you're not going to take me to Disney, are you? And he looked at her and he said, are you part of this family? And she said, yes. And he goes, are we going as a family? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, well, then if you're part of this family and we're going as a family, of course you're going with us. Now, the way you've been behaving is not a good thing, but we would never leave you behind. You're part of us. You're part of our family. And so... A couple weeks later, they went to Disney. This child had the time of her life. I mean, she fell in love with Disney. Her first day, she was so excited getting to meet this character and, and that character and, and getting to ride the various rides and, and getting to eat some grossly overpriced food and, and having just a great time with her family. That night, they got back to the hotel. She was just, she, could, she was beside herself. She just had such a great time and and they were tucking her into bed, and she was talking about all the various things that she had been able to do. And then she looked up at her daddy. And she goes, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. And he's smiling and nodding, and she said, And it wasn't because I was good, it's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. That is this God that we love because it's, it's not that God loves us because we're good. But it's because we're his. For God so loved the world. Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the leaders of the Jews. And you might know from reading the Gospels that, that Jesus and the Pharisees had a little bit of a rub. There was a little bit of a problem that was going on between them. And Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, recognized, though, there was something special about Jesus. And he wanted to spend some time talking to Jesus. So he went to Jesus, but at night. 
Anything in John is not there by accident. John is very specific. And so John tells you he goes up at night because he wants to talk to Jesus. He just doesn't need it to be obvious to everybody around what he's doing. And he goes up to Jesus and he goes, Rabbi, which means teacher. He goes, we know you must be a man from God because no one can do the kind of things that you do unless God is with you. Now, I would love to have heard what else Nicodemus was going to say. I would love to have heard what are the questions that Nicodemus had, what was he wanting to know. But John tells us that Jesus has this uncanny ability to look straight in our heart and see what's going on. And so Jesus just kind of cuts him off a little bit and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus is confused going, well, that makes no sense. I'm an older man. How in the world am I supposed to be born again? How can I re-enter my mother's womb to be born again? I just don't understand that at all. And Jesus explains, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And they have this dialogue. And then I picture Jesus placing his arm around Nicodemus. may not have happened, but it's what I picture. Placing his arm around Nicodemus and saying, For... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would would never perish but have everlasting life. And then I love the beginning of 17. John 3.16 is one of our favorite scriptures. And and we may in just a few minutes see somebody at a ball game holding up the poster, John 3.16. John 3.17 goes with it though because he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Indeed... Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not what this is all about. But rather that the world might be saved through him. It was a very intimate conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that that he gave his only begotten son. He so loves you. That he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. For indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I mean, we're already condemned. But rather, that the world might be saved through him. Why? Consequences, yes. But abandonment, never. Because God so loves. Now, one of the things I love about John 3 16 as well as you can do a whole series of sermons on that scripture simply by changing the inflection on various words. You know, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or, for God so loved the world. See, you can do the whole series. I'm not going to do that today. Not a whole series. But I love the fact that John makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear, as he shares with Nicodemus, that God so loves the world. It's not just us. One of the things I I sometimes find in our faith and in Christianity and the church is that we often think that God just loves us. But the point is, God loves the whole world, not just us. God loves every one of us. To the point that he would give his sons. One of my favorite stories is, 
is about the crossing of the Red Sea with the children of Israel. Now, this is really a story, but I think it, it kind of makes some sense that it, the story is told that when Moses was leading the children of Israel, they out of, out of slavery in Egypt, they get to the Red Sea. Remember the story of the Red Sea and, and how they get there and, and the sea's in front of them. They're trying to figure out how they're going to get to the other side. When they look back and see the dust clouds pouring up because well, Pharaoh had changed his mind. So now the army's in hot pursuit behind them. We want you back. We're going to put you back in slavery. And so they're chasing them down. And, and the children of Israel look down the Red Sea in front of them. Pharaoh's army behind them. We, ha we have no chance. We, we don't have any hope. And God said to Moses, raise your staff. And he raises his staff. Remember the story? This is all part of the scripture. And all of a sudden the water peels back and the children of Israel are able to cross on the dry land and they get to the other side and now they're safe. But Pharaoh's army is still in hot pursuit and pretty soon they're going across on the dry land too. And the children of Israel are thinking, oh no, oh no, we're, they're going to catch us. And Moses lowers the staff and the sea crashes in on them. Remember the story? But where the story continues is that some argue that there was, well, there was celebration on the other side of the seashore where, other side of the river where the children of Israel had made it. Oh, we're safe. We made it. We made it. Thank God we made it. And they're so excited that they crossed the river. They made it. And, and that there was rejoicing in heaven. The angels singing, we made it. They made it. This is awesome. They made it. Look, they made it. And, and there's all this celebration. And then someone turns and, and they see tears coming out of the eyes of God. And one of the angels asked, but God, they made it. They made it. They're safe. And God said, I know. I know. And I'm so happy they made it. But did you see how many of my other children died today? See, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. He gave his son for the world. Not just us. But for the world. Paul asking the question, well, this love of God is amazing. What can separate us from this love of God? And in Romans 8, he asked, will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, this love of God, we light this candle as a symbol of God's love. What can separate us? And then in verse 37, Paul says, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We light this candle as a symbol of God's love. For God so loved the world. Karl Barth was known to be one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. Brilliant mind, just an incredible deep thinker. As a matter of fact, when I was doing my doctoral work at Columbia Theological Seminary, my advisor on my dissertation was Dr. Shirley Guthrie. Dr. Guthrie was thought to be the last living professor student of Karl Barth himself. So he was a deep thinker, deep mind, and Karl Barth had, had written exhaustively on theology, exhaustively on the faith, and one of his major works was known as the Church Dogmatics. 
It'll fill up your bookshelf. It, it, it is a, a huge work. And it's hard to read. I mean, it's good stuff, but it's not the kind of stuff where you're going, I have a few minutes. I think I'll sit down and read the dogmatics. <laughs> you're going to plow through it. And so when I was taking my, my work with him and beginning working on the dissertation, he shared with me, I need you to read the dogmatics. Oh. <laughs> I want you to read the dogmatics, Bart's dogmatics on, on the theology of marriage and the theology of love and the theology of men and women and relationships. And I was like, okay. And he, I had to write a whole chapter in my dissertation just on Bart's understanding of the theology of love and marriage. And, and it all came out of the dogmatics, and I'm having to read this stuff and, and work my way through it because he is an incredible thinker, deep, deep thinker. Well, toward the end of his life, Karl Bart was invited to give a lecture at the University of Chicago Divinity School. So he gave the lecture, and then at the end, he opened it up for some question and answer. And so one of the students eventually asked him the question and asked what he considered to be the greatest theological discovery of his life. Now here he is, this amazing, brilliant, deep, deep theological thinker. And he's asked, what is the greatest theological discovery of your life? And they said that you could almost sense the students sliding to the edge of their seat, ready to hear what this amazing theologian and scholar was about to say. And he thought for a moment. And then he smiled gently. And he said, The greatest theological insight of my life is this. And you could have heard a pin drop. And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. End of conversation. What else? could be said.